Hello, and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast, where we talk about the intersection of sports, media, and technology. Today, we got an exciting conversation lined up with one of the heavyweight investors in the field, um, and very much excited to speak to Nick Hill. But before we get to that, I just wanted to remind everybody to like and subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Go to our website, sportsloft.co, and sign up for our newsletter where you can get information on the merging of sports technology and media. And also follow us on social at sportsloftHQ. Very excited today to have the fantastic, marvelous, wonderful Mr. Nikhil Bayal on with us from Elysian Park. Um, Nikhil, this is your first time on the podcast. Welcome to the Sportsloft. Thank you. I've been waiting for this one. <laughs> so uh fantastic to have you on board Nikhil is a uh partner at Elysian Park uh one of the best known venture capital firms in the sports and media technology space uh have made some excellent investments over the past few years Nikhil has joined from uh Discovery where he used to run their venture arm uh and we'll talk a little bit about that as well but Nikhil start out with just giving us a little little synopsis of Elysian Park and what you do day to day Sure. Yeah. So, um, as I said, so Listen Park sort of sits at the intersection of, well, we used to say we sit at the intersection of sports media and entertainment till it became the busiest intersection on the planet around and post COVID. <laughs> uh, and everyone found a way to sort of back into it. Um, we, we invest in what we call the sports plus model, which is where sports intersects with other facets of life, um, given how integral sports is and uh, how much of a community builder it is. Um, Elysian Park is born out of the ownership group of the LA Dodgers. Um, and the Dodgers ownership group, you know, in addition to uh, obviously LED, also owns stakes in uh, LAFC, in Golden State Warriors, in the Lakers, and now most recently with with Todd uh, uh, front running the Chelsea process as well. Um, we've sort of got that in the ecosystem. We as a fund, we are we're a venture fund. Uh, we invest in growth, tech enabled growth in and around the sports verticals. Um, we don't invest in teams ourselves. We let the ownership group kind of take care of that. Um, and we're looking for growth companies that can benefit from uh, our ecosystem. And uh, day to day, I'd say, you know, it's, it's almost uh, three parts between sourcing, uh, analyzing, uh, and then uh, portfolio management. Um, we, are, we have 55 plus companies in our portfolio to date. We've deployed, you know, close to half a billion dollars of capital. We've been around for the better part of seven years. Um, um, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the quick background. We're, we're, we're partners are based out of LA, uh, the Bay Area, New York, and London. And tell us a little bit about the London office, which you, you, you head up and you're sort of the figurehead for Elysian Park in, in Europe generally, not just, uh, not just in, the, in, in the US. How has it been kind of stepping into that role and building essentially the presence in a very mature market, um, but in a very startup kind of fashion yourself uh, in the VC space? Yeah, it's a good question. It's been, it's been fascinating, right? I mean, one of the reasons I joined when I did back, you know, three and a half years ago was I actually, it is a mature market, but yet it's a, it's a nascent market. So there was a real, when, when I was at Discovery, sort of running corporate development and looking at investments, um, one of the observations I had was there's a massive white space in terms of strategic investing around sports in particular as a unique and finite kind of, you know, defined sect, uh, sector uh, in Europe. In the U.S., it's very well sort of, you know, it's well indoctrined. They're, by definition, most of the people who, who invest in sports teams are high net worth individuals who also have family offices that dabble in and out of investing in sports verticals. And, you know, some of them have done it in a more institutionalized and professionalized manner and set up 
funds and firms to do it. Others do it sort of on an ad hoc basis. But in Europe, sort of my seven years of discovery kind of showed me no one was really looking at it as a sector specialization. It was really people coming in and out of buying soccer clubs. Right, mm-hmm. or football clubs in Europe, and that was really it. And that's not to say that there wasn't a lot of great tech and entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurial sort of ventures going on across not just Europe but EMEA and Asia, even uh, right, expanding into that. Um, and you know, sitting at Eurosport, we got a lot of pings, companies coming to us for fundraising. I'm like, you have nothing to do with broadcast, right, or media. So why are you coming to me? And it's like, well, because you have nowhere else to go, and you just think it's sport, and you know, American uh, company owned. So you're coming to me. It's that that to me. There was a real white space, and you know, I've known the guys at uh, I'd known the guys at Elysian for you know uh, half a decade before I joined them. Uh, you know, real sort of cultural fit, meeting of minds, and uh, the way they approach stuff. Um, so it's the London office has really just been an outpost. I think a lot of my time is still spent in companies in the U.S. as well, because sort of, you know the way we operate is we're sort of very integrated as a as an investment team. Um, and we work across everything, but obviously using my relationships and network and, and experience sort of working across uh, EMEA and Asia, um, trying to bring that to bear. And look, we're, one of our main philosophies is we kind of like to crawl, walk and run before we before we kind of, you know, really uh, invest and lean in. Uh, and part of that is driven by our, our goal of, you know, we, we don't, we're, unlike typical VCs, we don't sort of throw past that at the wall or spray and pray right we, we like to buy back one company in a domain and where we have high conviction and a, a thesis developed uh and part of that is we want to pick those companies no matter where they are in the world right so just having someone sort of from a time zone and geographic perspective who can kind of uh evaluate that as well as was was the genesis of setting this up so we're here in london central london so any of you who are around feel free to come and uh, visit we're in marlebone it's a gorgeous office, and I can say that actually there's a very, very good barista there as well, so it comes highly, highly recommended. Um, so t- t- un- unpick that a little bit for me because it's fascinating, right? And and especially, as you say, what those last two years have done in terms of the explosion of creativity and opportunity and investment flowing into the space. Um, you know, we at Sportsloft alone have seen a lot of uh, interest coming from the European market towards the U.S. market, where a lot of the tech companies have really been at the forefront of innovating in the in the media and entertainment space um, and sports, of course. Um, how have these past few years kind of um, developed? Uh, and allowed uh, uh, companies within Europe to start looking to develop and do things in the sp- in, in, in the sports space. And how much are you also looking to leverage that network to bring people over from the US? So it's a great question. I think a couple of things, right? I think in general, as a, as a general macro comment, I think the the pandemic and and the lockdowns accelerated technological adoption uh, at every level of the sports ecosystem, right? From IP owners to leagues and teams down uh right down to um uh you know consumers and and how fans engage uh and content creation and i think people recognize and realize a they miss sport right everyone everywhere across the world really missed sport and it was a real binding social uh, fabric that sort of brought people together uh and then content creation outside of life sports and so on and so forth right you saw a lot of that uh, and then the monetization, right? And I think what it also gave pause for what, what came out of it, as you saw with you know things that went on in some of the European clubs um, and, and otherwise, was poor fiscal management. Uh, you know, sort of being backs to the wall, coming out of pandemic when the live sport wasn't being played. I think it made everyone sit back and say, "Wait a second, is our model working?" Right? And the only ones who came out of it really were the U.S. franchises. And you sit up, sit back, and say that 
there is a precedent where the U.S. leagues and teams have got the model right from a commercialization, monetization perspective and a professionalization that frankly has not existed anywhere else in the world, right? So I think there has been an acceleration of the leagues and the federations across Europe, across sport, sort of trying to look at that U.S. model and saying, how can we replicate that? What do we need to do to change, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, that openness has, has really come into it, right? And, and moving away from being driven by pure agents, which is kind of the mm -hmm. historical sort of fact, right? Uh, especially in Europe. Um, so I think that's point number one. I think consumers have kind of also woken up and said, look, we like content. It doesn't have to be live content, but we want to be fed what's going on, whether it's daily content, whether it's small small bites content, whether it's long form content, whether it's, you know, uh, man in the arena with Tom Brady stuff in the US, whether it's the last dance and Michael Jordan's, uh, you know, story uh, for the second run uh, for the championships, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just led to people kind of appreciating and, and really having to think about what, what brings them together and why sports is so important. And everyone sort of focused on that. And then the monetization. Look, I mean, you, you got clubs like Barcelona and um, uh, Real saying, you know, they've got 600, 700, 800 million fans globally. You really dig into it. They're, yes, they do, because those people in India and China, millions and mil hundreds of millions of people click onto the website. But do they really know who those fans are? Do they know how to monetize those fans? Are they doing anything to monetize those fans? The answer is no, right? So they're sitting with interest around their clubs and their franchises and their brands. And now it's a question of how do you monetize that? So I, I know that's a lot and probably not answering the, the question directly, but it's just, I just think the whole, everyone's just started thinking about all of these things um, tremendously. And the other, the reverse flip I will say is betting, right? With betting opening up as a monetization tool, especially in the US. Now that's where the US is looking to Europe to say, okay, what was the model, right? Because Europe was far one of the early adopters of that. Um, so you're seeing a lot of transference the other way um, on, on that knowledge base. So where are you seeing the opportunities come up uh, for the next few years? Because you've mentioned a few of the things that have kind of developed over the last three to four years and there. Um, uh, you know, a lot of it is around data monetization, understanding of how you're gonna capitalize on it. Um, and we've obviously seen a lot of Web3 plays, some of them done well, some of them done really poorly, right? Um, where, how do you look at the next cycle? Uh, you know, you guys announced an awesome deal yesterday with, uh, uh, with gamers and uh, an investment there, which is, uh, which is fantastic and uh, I think will do really well. How are you looking at the future and kind of what prism are you using to evaluate opportunities going forwards? So the prism is really, I mean, it sounds simple. It's, it's, you know, like I said, it's thesis based, right? So we kind of come up with a thesis on every, every sub vertical that we're analyzing and trying to say, what, what do we have high conviction is where is the sector going? Uh, we really spend time with founders and trying to understand their North star, right? Because the reality is it is an ever shifting landscape around and uh, companies and sectors have to course correct uh, as trends change, right? I mean, six months ago, no one was talking about web 3.0, you know, now everyone's talking about web 3.0 a year ago, NFTs weren't a thing. Now everyone has to have an NFT strategy, right? So how, how do you kind of, you know, navigate that and, but yet not get distracted and hence having that North star is really important, right? So we spend a lot of time with founders and what is their North star, right? how are they going to keep going towards the North star? And that's the thesis that we develop. Um, so I, I think, and then look, areas, for us, for me personally, and I, I don't want to speak for the for the partnership group or Lucian as a whole, but for me personally, I think, look, Web 3.0 is definitely coming. It's going to be a form of fan engagement. It's going to be the reality, but there's still so much to be done on Web 2.0. I think a lot of people just focus on that and then pivot to Web 3.0 as we actually know what form and shape it takes because we don't know that yet, right? Um, so that's sort of my personal view on, on Web 3.0. And then 
I think community engagement is is becoming a big theme because again, it's like what brought people together. Sports, you know, like I said, is a fabric that brings people together in whatever form it is. It could be a sport, it could be a level of sport. So that's this community engagement, keeping that community together, whatever that takes. The content around it, the monetization around it, you know, the the tech uh, around trying to keep those people together on a platform that makes sense and easy is easy to use. I think those are all areas we're very focused on. Data has always been core to our sort of DNA because, um, you know, the, the early years of Elysian was very much around data analytics for youth development, coaching, uh, especially around baseball and basketball. I think that remains a key theme for us. Grassroot level sports is, I think, becoming incredibly important. Everyone is trying to figure out how to scout better, going into Africa and Asia for scouting, how to figure out how to monetize there, uh, how to track players, how to have better tools to analyze talent. Um, so that still uh, is is a very important vertical for us. And look, I mean, data because of betting now has you know the AI layer on top of that data analytics you're using initially for for talent development, coaching. But then you you have the data, you analyze it. Can you then you know start using that for monetization in different routes? So that's the other that's the other piece. Mm-hmm. So those are probably and then fitness and health tech, right? That became a big thing, as you know. I mean, it's always been a big thing, but COVID kind of pushed everyone into the online model. Now you're seeing people kind of go to return to somewhat of an offline model, but the reality is that somewhere in between it's a hybrid model. Um, so we're trying to figure that out. But again, it's it's a theme that's here to stay. I think COVID really forced people to think about health and fitness, right? And that's 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 one of our big uh, verticals as well that we're spending a lot of time on. Mm. I'm, I'm fascinated on, you know, a number of things because, you know, what you say triggered a few thoughts in my head. You know, one, one, of, one of the very interesting things that I've sort of, I've, <laughs> I've observed, you know, everybody's observed this. It's not really difficult, but um, people think that valuations of, for example, franchises in the U.S. are going to hit a, hit a ceiling. But, um, you know, we've seen time and again that those continue to be, uh, uh, to grow as, um, uh, uh, as different monetization strategies come on board, but also as the popularity of those sports grow. You know, they're, they're, they're limited assets, but also some of the most exceptional growth in those areas has been in women's sports and the way that those um, uh, uh, those franchise values have started have started to to really grow. Um, and we've seen a lot of examples of that over the past few years as uh, women's sport has really started to develop and really catch a foothold. Um, so, you know, I'm interested in your view, and I know that you guys are, are you know, part of um, Trailblazer Venture Studio as well, which I think is, is well worth having a little chat about. Um, that obviously women's sport is not a simple vertical. You know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of what you talked about going into it. There's engagement, there's fans, there's understanding the fan, there's data, there's obviously uh, cementing the, uh, cementing the, the, the content and the championship. But how did you guys uh, come up with the concept and how do you view the growth of, of women's sports? I mean, we think it's just beginning and it's, it's the, I, I, we think the growth in women's sports will far, far outweigh the growth in sort of traditional sports, if you will, because traditional sports, I won't say they've plateaued, but they're definitely kind of on a slower growth curve, right? The media rights and everything have already kind of hit pretty uh, meaty numbers. Um, the, the, you know, women's sports is completely new. It comes in and out during the world, uh, you know, the women's world cup in soccer and that's kind of been the genesis and now suddenly you're seeing with the hundreds here in in the uk where the women's hundreds tournament has actually had better viewership than the men's version of late the women's t20 you know cricket coming on now with all the leagues that are starting in the u.s around women's football and then you've got our soccer uh and obviously um uh w series in in uh, motorsports and so on and so forth 
and Serena Williams sort of was a trailblazer in her own right in, in uh, you know, the tennis uh, over the last couple of years, and, you know, led obviously by our partner at Trailblazer Studios, Billie Jean King, way back when, who's really kind of led the path here. Um, so we, we have tremendous belief, right? And the reality is there's a lot of corporate budgets sitting around advertising and sponsorship for it. There's not enough inventory to put it against. Um, media rights are waiting for it to, to sort of come through. And look, I mean, I'll quote, my, my wife always says like, you know, you, as long as there are two people of any genders with a ball and it, there's some form of competition, I'll sit and watch it, right? Because that's that's me as an avid sports fan. You know, the, the reality is the, the sport is incredibly uh, compelling, but there's huge opportunity. We're seeing, you know, even in apparel, um, and I mean like professional apparel, right? There are no uh, soccer cleats and soccer shorts that are designed with the female anatomy and physiology in mind, right? They're being forced to use youth uh, boys' uh, sort of clothing sizes, and yeah. sizes, right? Which is, to me, appalling in today's day and age, right? So there's so much opportunity even at that level at the grassroots level, at the just bringing people to play the game and then the professionalization, monetization. Um, so that was really the genesis, right? We were seeing sort of all the opportunities and uh, the success we had had with our earlier venture studios um, back at the LA Dodgers and LA Dodgers Accelerator and Global Sports Venture Studios back in 2014-15. We said, there is a moment in time to kind of try and replicate that accelerator and create the first one for women in sports and women and sports right so the focus of trailblazer blazer studios which is a um which is a partnership between billy jean king uh, innocent park and rga ventures is to really you know we we've honed in on nine companies that we brought into the first cohort you know we've invested a little bit of capital behind them but really to help bring our ecosystem to bear to help commercialize and and they're either companies that are founded by women uh, obviously, all the companies have something to do in, in the world of sports, but they're either founded and run by women or they are focused on uh, women's sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's sort of the uh, that's the genesis of it. And our, our hope is that, you know, by putting them through a three, four month program, helping them accelerate a little bit, getting them a little bit more visibility, um, they can really ride the sort of the, the, the tailwinds over the next year or so. Do you think that that trend is replicable in Europe as well? Um, you know, the UK is sort of slightly arguably different, but, you know, is it is it something that you think will eventually take hold and grow in the same way? 100%. I think Europe is just a little bit further behind, right? There's still a lot to be done in the professionalization of just the men's sport itself, uh, as we alluded to earlier. And I think, but it's coming, right? Everyone is watching the women's, I mean, you know, with what the Lionesses did here, the Euros, uh, the Women's Champions League, the cricket, like it's it's coming. It's just a question of, professionalizing it, the teams and the leagues, treating it as a professional block and then, you know, putting together the infrastructure that's required there, right? The commercial uh, apparatus around it, if you will. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And so with that in mind and kind of the, the, the focus, I want to take you back to kind of, you know, what you've been talking about. You you have over 30 companies in your portfolio. You've got, um, you know, 50, sorry. Yeah, over exactly. 50. Um, yeah. <laughs> over 50 in the portfolio. Um, you're constantly looking at new opportunities. There is capital to be deployed. How do you balance that? You know, it's, it's just one of the questions that I love asking people in your position. Like there's just, you, 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 want to, you want to find the next big thing, but you also must have, a, you know, half a mind on, I need to make sure that the thing that I put money into is actually growing and working the right way and, and use the network in order to leverage that. How do you prioritize that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, look, I mean, one of the one of the strong things for us is 
one of our main filters is how do we add value, right? And I think that really just becomes a filter on in, a, in and of itself. So obviously we have to like the, the idea, the product, the tech, we have to like the management team. We have to sort of see, um, uh, sort of see the common North star, believe in that vision. Once you've got through all of that, then there's a second filtration process, which is how are we going to add value, right? And it comes to a little bit of what is, because we, we don't want to just be capital for the sake of capital. So we, and, and I know everyone says this, but, you know, we've built a system and an ecosystem around us uh, of what we call our strategic services that all sort of focus on certain verticals or certain commercialization tools for our portfolio companies. So we we ask the uh, founders of, of companies we're talking to to kind of do that reverse diligence, spend time with our ecosystem, really come and come up with a game plan of how we are going to tangibly add value over the next, you know, whatever it is, short to medium term. And if we can't come up with that, frankly, no matter how much we like a company and a management team, we won't invest unless that is sort of pretty much sought through. So that, that almost becomes like a self-fulfilling uh, uh, filter process, if you will. And that really mm. helps us. Yeah. And speaking about liking founders and kind of, you know, uh, liking a founding team, what do you look for? What, what, what does a, what does a founder need to have in order to really get the most out of the ecosystem that you guys have? Because it is an impressive one, right? It's, 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 it's incredible. The, the, the LPs that you have involved, the people who are, um, the people who are invested, uh, you can get a lot of value out of it. What are the characteristics and traits that you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one to nail down on, right? So because you meet a lot of people, very different personalities, as you can imagine, a lot of people have to be eccentric to kind of be founders to start with. Um, but it's a balance. I think it's a balance of finding people who are truly passionate and hard-headed to have driven their company to come to a stage where they've got to, because that's the you know that's the initial fight. Um, but then also have the maturity to mature with their company, right? I think that's where a lot of startups fail is where the founder is unable to kind of make that transition from, you know, you can get from zero to one, but can you take it from one to two and one, you know, one to three and one to four. And that's not always for everyone um, because on, on, you know, on the back of a great idea and real raw ambition, you can get to a certain point with friends and family capital. The question is like, can you now manage an ecosystem? Because you have to move from just managing, you know, once you take a series A, you've got to move from just being able to manage the team and the product and the development to also managing stakeholders and shareholders and partners and everything else. Right. So that evolution is kind of what we try and spend time uh, assessing with on management teams. And do you, do you have a format for that, a template or is it, is it cause just sitting from the outside, it's different. Everybody's, everybody's different. Everybody approaches it differently. And no, which you is, know. yeah. And look, which is why I sort of alluded to the crawl, walk, run strategy, right? Like, going with a little bit of equity, observe. And if you're not seeing those traits, then we'll not sort of double up. We'll, we'll kind of, you know, still keep helping as much as we can. But for us to double up and put more capital and more capital behind it, we have to have more and more conviction that we're seeing that evolution of a management team um, maturing effectively, right? And, and that's one. And the, two, the second thing is we do, you know, the, the earlier stage the company is, uh, we tend to try and introduce it within our ecosystem and, and observe before we actually put capital and deploy capital. So we'll, we'll help them kind of along the way, introduce them to the Dodgers or, you know, hopefully to Chelsea soon and to, to our global sports venture studios or to Breakaway or whatever, you know, sports innovation labs, all, all sort of our strategic services uh, and see how they are getting on and whether they're, you know, A, being willing to ask for the help they need, B, take the advice they're being given and how they kind of operate and, and take on all of that uh, gives us great insight. Mm. While still adding value, right? Still adding value to them because the whole point is that's how you keep the engagement going. 
Mm -hmm. And how do you approach the 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 right time to uh, the right time to exit? Uh, what's what's your philosophy around that? And how do you uh, do, do you have a defined time period? Do you have uh, a defined like if it hits this value or out? Talk, talk to me, talk to me yeah, about that. Ours is pretty unique, right? Because we're effectively a balance sheet funded uh, fund. So we don't have sort of the typical fund constraints of life of fund and, you know, we have to show yeah. exits and returns. So the honest answer is we don't think about it. We obviously analyze it going in as to where we think and how big we think a, a company could get. But um, in terms of actual exits, we don't force that at all. We just, the right time kind of hits you, right? In some cases, maybe premature, like, you know, there's some examples in a portfolio where companies we thought were going to be massive unicorns got offers that they couldn't refuse when they were and are you know flourishing under larger organizations and had to get bought out. And so we had to exit. Ideally, we would probably have liked to hold on to them for a couple of years. Some naturally get to IPO stage. Some don't. But, you know, it's just it, it really we don't have a fixed formula for that. So our, our, our thesis is, you know, the right outcome will happen as long as the company is sort of continuing to grow uh, and progress in the right way and, you know, continuing to solve the problem that we had identified to start with. And speaking of growth and progress, obviously, you know, sort of over the last six months, the world has has slightly um, flipped on its head in terms of uh, the, the economics and the macro, the macro vision, which two questions. Number one, how has that affected you guys? Has it made you more aggressive to try to find the opportunities now on the basis that you're looking at a longer t- um, longer time horizon so that when it starts to bounce back, you'll be in a better position? And secondly, um, which of your portfolio companies are actually benefiting from this? I'm really curious. It's like if, there's, if you're seeing trends in specific industries that are actually uh, or specific verticals that are actually performing well through this, uh, uh, through this, shall we call it mini recession or start of a recession or however you want to term it. So take the first one in order, I guess. I don't think it's really changed our outlook. I mean, you know, we are, you know, we are spending a lot more time in the portfolio to make sure that, you know, there's a lot of handholding founders tend to be younger, less experienced, you know, for some of them, it may be their first sort of uh, economic downturn that they're living through. So, you know, there's a lot of handholding around that. Um, I think for the most part, Across the board, most of our portfolio is pretty well capitalized. And I think we, we were a little bit lucky that most of them went and raised rounds just before sort of all of this hit. Um, so they're, they're well capitalized and, you know, we're willing to back them um, through all of it. The key is really just about how they're prioritizing uh, capital expenses and, you know, whether they're, you know, if they're seeing a slowing of growth because of the nature of the economy, then are they also kind of slowing down expenses and corporate overheads and things like that, right? And it's spending time with them on those type of things. But I don't think we've really seen, I think mostly, like I said, because we've kind of, it's very thesis driven. So all the companies we've picked by and large over the last four or five years, at least, have definitely been ones that we genuinely believe in. And if anything, we think, you know, if they come out of the pan, you know, come out of this recession intact, uh, even with, with, you know, no growth, but even if they can just keep the businesses going to the extent they are, they're going to be in a much better position because a lot of the competition would have been wiped out in the interim, right? Mm. How is that conversation with a founder? I'm curious, like, because, you know, most founders want to spend, they want to go, they want to push, you know, obviously they want to try and scale as much as possible. Is that, do you find that that's a uh, easy conversation to have in the context of, listen, we need to be protecting your business or are some of them defensive and just don't like, don't like to go there? Yeah, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, I had one of those defensive <laughs> conversations a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, so it, it's, that must it's, have been fun. Yeah, no, but you know, part of it is they, they've just not thought through it. You know, and, and you're sitting mm. down and saying, "Look, I get you want to be aggressive. We want you to be aggressive, which is why we backed you. But this is not the time to be aggressive, right? Mm. Because you're not going to be able to raise another round right now, or your valuation is going to be so low that you're going to dilute, and it's not worth it for you. So if you really want to go down that route, we'll we'll work with you on it. But let's think about it. Yeah. Uh, and it's really sitting down with them and explaining that. And, and, you know, the slightly more mature companies sort of get it. They, they see, you know, they've seen it before or, you know, they're using it opportunistically to say, you know, let's let's double down on our tech platform or let's double down on, you know, let's cut marketing expenses and let's do this or that. So, uh, you know, I'd probably say 15%. Uh, I'm throwing a number out there, but roughly 15% are tougher conversations and 85 are much easier conversations. No, oh, that's that, that's interesting. I would have I would have wagered a higher number would have been tougher. So that's uh, that's probably good. A couple of questions that I want to want to want to hit you with when I close, and these are these are always I ask everybody who who comes on the podcast in in, in sort of your position these these questions. Number one is, give me your kind of um, two or three big things that you're looking at. Obviously, without disclosing confidential information, but that you're looking at that you're that you're particularly excited about, and then give me. What is it that you love about this, and what is it that you don't love or that you hate about this? What are the what are, what are the what are the really positives and what are the downsides? Most exciting things I think are still sort of community engagement, right? I just think that that just is so untapped, and you know, there's so many different ways to kind of talk about how you're engaging your fan base and communities and how you're going to monetize it. But that that whole piece of community building, and I think people have kind of you've seen this, right? People coming out of the pandemic want to meet again and want to hang out again, and like it's just going back to this whole mode. So to me, that and data, it's all about data, right? And how you use the data, whether that's for advertising, sponsorship, betting, coaching, development, and grassroots. I think those are the three three big themes, um, professionalization and, uh, te- you know, really enabling technology to take over the grassroots uh, sports uh, across globally, right? And even in, even in this country, in the UK, it's so poor. Like when you really go into it, it's, it's, it's appalling. Um, so I think that's, uh, those would be the big themes from my perspective in terms of what I love about it. It's just, you know, I'm a big sports fan. Dude. Like it's like, who, how, where do you go? I mean, what conversation do you have where sports doesn't somehow come into it? Like, you know, who do you meet where it doesn't come in? Like, it's just so much fun. And then to see sort of young companies, fresh ideas constantly, it's just, con- you know, it's constant simulation. Um, it's just a lot of fun. What do I not like about it is a really tough one. I think what I don't like about it, uh, it's really nothing to be honest. It's just uh, sometimes it's just frustrating because there's more, that you want to do than you can do. Right. And I think that's the frustrating part is there's so much opportunity and there's so many companies that you want to back. And then you kind of have to back one and you kind of feel, Oh, you know, there's always this, you know, um, FOMO of the one you didn't, didn't invest in or the one you missed out on, or you didn't, you know, couldn't do. Any, any, you can talk about any, 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 you missed out on. Uh, not for the last two, three years, I have to say, we'll see. I'm I'm sure it'll pop up dime a dozen. (laughs) (laughs) Guarantee you. (laughs) Excellent. Well, Nikhil, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk to us here in the Sports Loft. It's fantastic to get your insights. Uh, Again, for the listeners, if you liked what you heard and want to hear more of it, make sure you subscribe to our podcast and give us a like. Uh, Go to our website, uh, sportsloft.co, and sign up for the newsletter. And also make sure you follow us on social at sportsloftHQ. All that remains for me is to say a huge thank you again to Nikhil from Elysian Park. Continue doing what you're doing and being amazing. Nikhil, thank you for coming on to the Sports Loft. Thanks, Yanni. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to everybody for listening. We'll see you again soon in the Sports Loft. Goodbye. <laughs>